0: The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk
1: Radio Network,
0: its staff, and management.
1: Welcome to Conscious Evolution Radio with your host, Ann Gelsheimer. We are entering higher levels of consciousness with both old and new spiritual technologies to help us be the people we've always dreamed of being. We can make the choice to evolve in consciousness and become the change the world needs today. Now, here is Anne Gelsheimer.
2: Hello, this is your host, Anne Gelsheimer, and welcome to Conscious Evolution Radio. How many of you, perhaps since childhood, felt powerfully drawn to the sacred sites gods, pharaohs, and profound esoteric teachings of Egypt. I know I did. That is why I'm so excited that Normandy Ellis has agreed to be my guest today on Conscious Evolution Radio to discuss her latest book, Imagining the World into Existence, an Ancient Egyptian Manual of Consciousness. Normandy Ellis is an Archpriestess of the Fellowship of Isis and facilitates an Arametic Mystery School. She has led many trips to Egypt and has written various books on Egyptian myth, ritual, and magic, including Imagining the World into Existence. Also, other titles included Invoking the Scribes, Feast of Light, and Dreams of Isis. Her book, Awakening Osiris, is considered a spiritual classic. Normandy and Nikki Scully have just completed a new book called The Union of Isis and Thoth, Initiatory Practices in Ancient Egypt. This book is the culmination of 20 years of work with Nikki in the Egyptian Mysteries. So Normandy, welcome and thank you so much for joining us on, on this radio program.
3: Thank you so much, Anne. It's really good to be here. So I wonder if we could uh, just back up
2: a little uh, to the biography I just shared about you. I said that you were an archpriestess of the Fellowship of Isis and that you were leading an Arametic Mystery School. Could
3: you tell us about that? Yeah, a Hermetic Mystery School, yes. Um, the um, What I do is I teach classes uh, in... Um, various uh, methods of coming to understand the ancient Egyptian uh, priestesshood, I guess, would be the way to explain that. And I do a lot of work with people who are interested in uh, inscribing and learning to understand uh, their own Book of the Dead. We work with uh, the ancient texts, and we try to... Um, Use the tasks that the, that the ancient priesthood used for us to understand our own lives through the symbols and the and the hieroglyphic thinking of, of the ancient Egyptians. Um, we do a lot of work with. Um, ex- Exploring the Nine Spiritual Bodies in the Ancient Egyptian Tradition. Um, Some we know about, the Ka and the Ba, but there are other hidden realms that are in the astral, and we talk a little bit about that. Um, I teach people how a little bit about how to read and write in hieroglyphs, and um, I've led classes in astrology, in um, metaphysical ethics, in creating books of shadows and light, and a number of other things that, you know, as one begins to uh, work more and more with the realm of spirit, would have an interest in doing.
2: So, Normandy, how, how did the, all of this come about? This is so fascinating to me. What were you, did you feel that you had any past life mystery or uh, memories
3: as a I child? Was, or? Yes, absolutely. Yes, um, yeah, of course you don't really realize that you're having a past life memory until, in retrospect, you look back and say, my gosh, I've been doing this my whole life, you know? Um, And I think one of the main ones is that I I had a lot of uh, very Catholic relatives uh, that I would stay and visit with over the summer, and I can remember the statues of the Virgin Mary, especially where she's standing on top of the world with her foot upon the serpent, you know, I was so drawn to that image and her blue gown, and I would just stand in front of the mantle and stare at her. Um, and so I found myself as a young woman, um, you know, a, a young girl going into the woods and setting up little altars in the trees with, you know, like planks of wood that were from the cut off end of whatever my dad was building, and I'd put them in the crotch of the trees and take ball jars with flowers and water and put them in there and make little altars everywhere. And then I'd just lie down on my blanket and look up at the canopy of trees with this blue sky behind me, and it was as blue as the skirt of the great goddess, you know. And I just thought of her as God's wife. And that, you know, it was my biggest thrill. And, um, I can remember having these conversations with my mother. She would say, It's time to go to church. And I would say, But I want to go to the cathedral in the tree. You know? Oh, oh <laughs> and that's so lovely. I it home. Yeah, and, and there was a little storm sewer, and I would crawl into it and with chalk and crayons. I would draw and write poems on it, and, you know. So I was—I believe I was having these past life memories of being a scribe, you know, and um, working as a priestess. And, but I didn't really know it until I got older.
2: Wow. what? What is involved in the work of a priestess i 'm sorry i 'm just going right into that because I 'm so curious about that.
3: Well, I think I think um, and it 's very interesting that you ask me this because i 've had um, a very solitary life as a priestess, uh, because there are not very many people who understand the work of a priestess until you join another group of people or find your your community, you know. So I think a lot of people end up becoming solitary priestesses to start, you know. And I think that they, um, the main thing and the main way to start is to find uh, an image, um, an icon that you really resonate with and that you would want to spend some time with. Um, And it's not that the icon is the holy thing, but whatever your consciousness, everything is filled with spirit. And so whatever your consciousness is able to focus on brings that energy into that particular object. So I focus on, you know, a candle flame in front of a statue of Isis, and that's where I want to bring in that feminine energy into my life. And so I'll do meditations there. That's the first way it starts, you know. Um, You begin to uh, open a book. I think... I think um, beginning to have those conversations with the divine and recording them, uh, really listening to the sound and the voice, you know, uh, of the divine as it moves through you is a great way to really initially start. Um, now, some people will say, well, I, I would like not to work silently because I I don't trust what I'm getting, so I want someone else to, or sort of walk with me. Um, right. And so that that's a perfectly logical way to do that. And there are many uh, members, many clans in the fellowship of ISIS, where a person might want to. Uh, find someone to teach them, someone to instruct them, someone to whom they can ask questions. I would say uh, for me it became it became uh, the strongest part of my life when I t- began to see that there were festival days that I could celebrate you know in the same way that there are festival days through any kind of other religious calendar that I needed to follow the ancient Egyptian calendar for myself. And so there are feast days that I follow through and things that I do on those particular feast days. And, um, oh gosh, I can remember waking up one morning when um, Lady Olivia Robertson, who was the uh, priestess of the Chronicle Castle Fellowship of Isis, the international, you know, she was like the main mother of of a lot of different priestess clans. And um, she was passing into spirit at the age of 96, I think. I had been many different fellowship celebrations with her in California and in Chicago. And um, oh, it was just lovely. She was a painter and a dancer and just the most wonderful example of a woman filled with Isis. She she was, she embodied Isis, and I Beautiful. loved her so much, and on the night in which she was dying, I, I woke up out of a, a dream in which she had come to me and said, what will you do for the Fellowship of Isis? And I said, Lady Olivia, whatever you ask me to do, I will do, you know, and then I woke up, and then later that morning, I found out that she had died, and I thought to myself, okay, so what is it that she wants of me? And one of the things that occurred to me was to begin in the community where I live in Indiana to create a more conscious gathering of women who are interested in the God. It's kind of like the way uh, Linda Starwolf got her message that she was to build uh, Isis Cove, or Mickey Scully got her message that she was to build the Temple of Thoth on her property. I received the message that I was to begin to create this. The school on my property, but I had no idea how I was going to do this. This was like just last year. Um, and oh, wow. then, yeah, come to find out now, uh, I was contacted by the terror clan of the fellowship of ISIS and they, um, had let me know that I had become been inducted as an arch priestess. There's a ceremony that still needs to happen, but you know, it was like, okay, that was a validation that after I had said yes to Lady Olivia, that this was going to happen, that it is indeed in the process of happening.
2: That's beautiful. And so, wow, and it's so new, so it's really hard to say where it's all going to go.
3: Yes, that part of it. It is hard to say where it's all going to go. And and as I said, I had been for many years solitary, and yet people would say, oh, your book has done this and, you know, and, Your your other book, this, and, you know, and I would teach in various places, but I did not have my own um, home temple, you know what I mean? so now I'm feeling that that I'm creating that now. Um, So it is going to be brand new, and yet it's going to be a place where I can do all the things I've done outwardly in one single spot now. So that'll be
2: the are you anticipating then? So people would travel there and, and perhaps study with you.
3: Yes, I am. I am. There's a That's where I wonderful. live is in an intentional community, and there's a hotel right there. And there's you know meeting rooms, and so it's it's not been built as a place for the goddess, but it has been built as a place for spiritualists, and so I will be able to bring people into that community and um, kind of marry the two for them the way that I've married it within myself, you know.
2: That's that's wonderful, because I know as I was reading your book, I was really touched not just by the words, but the energy of the book. I mean, it, it's like you became a conduit for me to uh, the, the power of, of the ancient Egyptian teachings that are still there, still so accessible if we just... Know how to make that contact.
1: Right. I'm
2: wondering if if you could tell us what it was like for you uh, when you first went to Egypt, because with your soul connection to Egypt, it must have been quite an amazing experience to actually stand there physically <laughs> in this lifetime.
3: It was. It was. It was. Um, it was under strange circumstances. I was to have met a friend there. And the friend was in uh, a really horrible accident in Pakistan and uh, really was in a coma for three months. And so I already had my tickets and I went to Egypt. I had just published Awakening Osiris. I had never been to Egypt before until after that book was published. You know, I had lived Egypt for 10 years, but I had not traveled there and so getting off the plane I mean I just I wanted to stop and kiss the ground you know it was just the most amazing experience for me and um but you know not knowing the culture or anything I was sort of at the (laughs) of the people who were driving me around you know and and um it was I became immersed not just in the temples but in the culture of the people and realizing how ancient, you know, some of the same things that they would tell me were things that I had understood ancient Egyptians thought. And yet these modern people, you know, people in 1991 were still thinking and saying and doing some of these same things, only... You know, uh, it's kind of like it's kind of like uh, this is the way grandmother always did it, so this is how we're doing it. You know what I mean? That's amazing. Um, it was nice to see a culture that was still alive um, mm-hmm. in that way. Uh, it the places where I went, I had um, I had a, one of those moments where um, I was. Uh, attacked by the Pharaoh's curse, you know, and so I spent three days being very ill in the boat, um,
1: throwing oh, up, oh. and
3: <laughs> it was pretty bad, and, and I was by myself, so there was no one to check on me, so I was in the boat, oh. uh, in my room, and Sekmet came to me, and Sekmet like, sort of pulled me out of my body, and she and I flew across the desert, and I could feel her healing energy, you know, she just, like, uh, lifted me over the sand, and I could feel the heat of these sand dunes kind of scouring my body in a way as we were, like, floating over top of these dunes, and I can remember this so strongly, and then she brought me back, and I I was healed, you know, it was as if nothing had happened.
2: That it is was such a shamanic powerful. experience, isn't it?
3: <laughs> it truly was. It truly was. So and, we're, um, we're
2: going to take a short break. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, we're going to take a short break, but we can come back in and uh, pick up with that. I hope you don't mind. Is that okay? No, that's fine. That's no, Okay, thank you, Normandy. So this is Ann Gilsheimer on Conscious Evolution Radio, and we will be right back.
3: The
4: Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Tune in to Spirit Speaks every week for advice just for you that is channeled from Divine Source. Host Amiya is a spiritual teacher and guide who helps listeners actively develop their full potential. Each program includes a channeled soul reading and is ready to discuss the teachings with you every week. Topics include a variety of religious and spiritual aspects, plus healing modalities and intuitive development of self. Spirit Speaks can be heard live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Become a member of VoiceAmerica.com. It's easy and best of all, it's free. Start out by going to our homepage or any of our channels and click register at the top. The Voice America Seventh Wave Channel. Seek greater awareness.
1: You are tuned in to Conscious Evolution Radio, and we love to hear from you. Please send any questions or comments about the show via email to Conscious Evolution Radio at gmail.com. Again, that's Conscious Evolution Radio at gmail.com. Now, Back to this week's program.
2: Hi, this is Ann Gelsheimer and you're listening to Conscious Evolution Radio. And my guest today is Normandy Ellis. And we were just listening to an experience that Normandy had when she first visited Egypt in 1991. And it was a true shamanic experience of a very severe illness, an encounter with the divine and a healing. Normie, I wonder if you could tell us more about what you've learned about shamanism in ancient Egypt.
3: Sure. Um, From what I can understand uh, in all the readings that I have done in the ancient uh, Egyptian pyramid text, which is from the Old Kingdom, the oldest uh, religious text that we have of, of any discipline, really, even older than Sumerian texts, there were shamanic experiences in which um, a person who was undergoing initiation, and usually in the ancient Egyptian, it was the pharaoh himself or the next pharaoh-to-be, would undergo a a death-in-life experience in which they were um, basically mummified. They they weren't fully mummified, but they were wrapped in a shamanic-induced uh, state and pulled on a sledge through the sand, just the same way they would pull the, the coffin in the sarcophagus up to um, the pyramid. And then that person would be left inside in their shamanic state um, for three days, after which time they would awaken uh, in this darkened Um, and then they would find a way to uh, turn a light on, you know, like not a candle. I think they had oil lamps. And then the glyphs that were carved upon the pyramid text would be basically the text of their own transformation. They would read them as ways either to... uh, go up the ladder of consciousness in the same way that we hear stories of, you know, uh, Jacob's ladder up into heaven and he sees the angels coming up and the angels going down. And and um, it's that same consciousness of climbing and ascending a ladder into heaven um, or a staircase, if you will, like the step pyramid, the Pharaoh would climb up the staircase to commune with the ancestors and to speak with uh, the master teachers um, to find out what the plan was for the culture. So it was not just a personal experience, it was a shamanic experience to download the divine plan, which to me is really fascinating because, you know, we're so... Involved in the individuation of the personal experience, and yet this was to find out what is it I need to bring my culture, uh, what were my ancestors working toward, and how do I add to that so that I can bring that consciousness back down and continue the pattern. And that goes a long way toward explaining why the ancient Egyptian culture lasted 3,000 years. You know, it was not simply the personal, it was the communal experience of trying to bring this information back down. Um, And all of the pyramid texts uh, in the Pyramid of Unis point toward that, point toward finding a way to have communion, you know, a true, like, you know, in the Christian sense, they call it the body and blood of Christ, but this is like being able to partake of the divine nature of the gods themselves um, and so that we can pull that energy back into ourselves. Uh, and if you saw everything in the world is holy, then that's what you're doing. You know, you are partaking of divine substance and pulling that knowledge back inside you. And so that would make an incredible difference in the way you perceive the world well it
2: would and and with that deliberate conscious intention to connect with the divine and align with the divine will a greater service rather than just service to self that what a what a spiritually infused leadership that could be
3: right well that was that was the goal but as we know about politics not everyone was yes. able to attain it right <laughs> but that was the goal <laughs>
2: Were there particular periods in Egypt that you feel really exemplified that in a, in a purer way?
3: Well, you know, um, and I can't tell when I say this if it's because it's true or if it's just because I must have had some past life experience, but I'm very, very sure. drawn to the Old Kingdom. Right. I'm very, very drawn to um, the... I guess it's to the time between the 4th and 5th dynasties where we're moving from the um, Heliopolitan, which is basically the City of Light, or, you know, what was Cairo, Heliopolis at that time, and all that building in Giza of the Great Pyramid, you know, that was all connected to um, understanding of God and consciousness as light, you know, um, and uh, I wouldn't say it was raw consciousness. It was more uh, the god um, Atum, who was the the um, one who spoke the word uh, and spoke the world into being. And then it moves into um, the fifth dynasty, and Memphis, the city of Memphis, becomes more important than Heliopolis. Mm-hmm. And Memphis is the god Ptah, who also speaks the world. Into being. So there's a similarity there. But he has the goddess Sekhmet, and then the pharaoh is the embodiment of the divine son called Nefertum. And that's where you get the pyramid of Unas in there. And that's at that point, you have the text being inscribed upon the walls of the tomb. There's nothing inscribed in the fourth dynasty. And then the fifth dynasty is when it starts. So those. I was real.
2: Mhm. Yeah, I was really fascinated difficult. with what you had to say about hieroglyphs and and the inscriptions on the walls and how the contemplation of the hieroglyphs was a spiritual path in itself. Could you could you tell us more about hieroglyphs? They, they there's so many there was so much in your book. They're so nuanced.
3: Yes, they um well, it's hard to explain in in just a few words, but they they sure. function as as uh, symbolic content, as well as phonetic and vibrational content, as well as image and symbol. So any word that you're looking at operates on all all of those levels, all three of those. There's um, there's sort of a story almost encoded inside the image itself that uh, you have to spend some time meditating on it and on the relationship between the words that are near it in terms of what it means. And in fact, if you're sitting inside the pyramid of Unus and you read text on one wall uh, on your right and then you turn and you read the text on the other wall, which is on your left, you can find that those two texts begin to have a conversation with them, each other. So it's not just a sequential book, it's the walls talk back and forth.
2: So, Normandy, I love the quote that uh, I found in your book um, where you said here that hieroglyphs are not only works of art, but also an invocation of the divine that opens a doorway between worlds. And I know now we're moving into the the topic of Egyptian magic, but could you tell us more about the power of hieroglyphs and magic?
3: Okay. Um, As I was mentioning before, the hieroglyph will work on a number of ways. It uh, works vibrationally as one of the ways. So that the repetition of a a particular word um, with an invocation of the sound of that word can create uh, resonances um, that take you into deeper space in terms of your meditation and sometimes into trance state. Now, the trick to that is that you have to practice with those words and those languages in order to know how that resonates inside your own body because the Egyptian hieroglyphs don't always have the exact same vowel sounds written in them. It's like the Hebrew language where the vowels are hidden so right. that the magic is kind of hidden. Um, and so uh, when you begin to pronounce a language, you're having to learn it from scratch in a way. Um, but the repetition of the sound will set up a certain vibration for yourself. Um, now, certain glyphs, like the glyph of the dung beetle, you know, um, and that's the one I always like to use and talk about so that it's understood. For people. Uh, there's a line in one of the uh, books of the dead in one of the chapters of the dead, that says, and I'll try to pronounce it, Nukpu in Kapara, Nukpu Imrea. And it means it means in the beginning I became the becoming, being what I created. And so you have an image of the dung beetle as beginning, being, becoming, creating. Um, and so it's all of those things all at once. When you start thinking about, well, what is really the source of, of dung beetleness in a person's life, you know, and you start thinking about right. what that dung beetle means. Um, you are talking about a creature that... Um, lays its eggs inside a ball of cow manure. And over a process of time, the heat of the cow manure sets up the cycle of uh, this regeneration of the little tiny insects that burst forth from this dung ball and spring up into life and fly away into the sky. And that's a sort of magic, you know. And that's really the alchemical... Uh, process of turning base matter, because there's nothing more base than a dung ball, into something golden, which is like those little dung beetles that are, you know, brilliant, shiny, what? Gold flying up into the sky, you know, and lead into gold. Alchemy. And then alchemy is a word that means from the land of Egypt. Chem was the name of ancient Egypt, the black land which was the fertile land, which was the dung ball. And so it's like this whole resonance when you begin to meditate on where that dung ball and beetle comes from and what it begins to symbolize and how many different ways uh, you can look at it. And you can take that into your personal life. Where in my life have I had the base matter? What are the dark parts that I have had to process in my lifetime? And you go and you basically take what has happened and find the seeds inside the dung ball, and through a process of uh, meditation and prayer and realization and uh, ritual, you're able to bring that dark place into something that's a form of light and a change in consciousness. And so, but it's all a process of figuring out how that works. You understand that that. Is something that happens in the divine realm too. Behind every single now in every temple is an image of the dung beetle. At the at the very center of the temple, it's like the, it generates the pulse of the temple. It's what creates the energy behind uh, the living statue inside the now. So you know that little symbol can be found everywhere. And it is really very potent. And it just depends on how you adapt yourself to using it and thinking about it over a period of time.
2: You know, it really reminded me when I was reading the book of poetry, because you can hear uh, what an author says on so many different levels. And the symbols in the poetry can evoke personal memories and archetypal memories. So it it made a lot of sense uh, what you described. I wonder if we could move now to uh, talking about Egyptian magic, because you mentioned that magic is a part of the constitution of our being. And so you mentioned that it's part of our heritage as co-creators of our world. Could you talk more about
3: this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I always like that. I like to remind my Christian friends of, The uh, place in the Bible where uh, they're looking down upon creation and God says, it says God says, let us make man in our own image. You know, and so it's like these multiple layers of divine being are making humankind in multiple layers of divine being. And so So that idea then that we're always and at every moment part of the spark of the divine and that each one of us, even people that we don't like necessarily, are part of those sparks of the divine. Um, But not everybody recognizes it. And when you are able to um, separate a, a small personal will from, you know, allow it to sort of sit there and rest and say, okay, not my will, but thine. That's a really hard one. You know? But to let, let that divine will move in you, then you're able to participate more completely in the process of co-creation, I believe. Um, and I think, okay. I think part of it also is that... Um, Recognition that thoughts are things. That if we are divine, that what we think is is God thought as well. That we're creating through the vibration of our own thoughts what's going to happen uh, and what our lives are about. So I, 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 heard, people, uh, yeah. Yeah, I heard yeah. I heard an, an interesting, interesting quote on. Don't want. Go ahead.
2: Sorry, I just think I I heard an interesting quote on that. That everything is twice created, once in thought, and then and then eventually in the material world. So what you're saying makes a lot of sense.
3: Yes, exactly.
2: We're going to take a short break, um, but when we come back, I would love to talk more about the process of enlightenment that the Egyptian teachers talked about or taught about. And I would also love to hear more about uh, the things that you're doing that are coming up, your new book and your new trainings. So this is Ann Gelsheimer on Conscious Evolution Radio, and we will be right back.
4: Invite meaning and inspiration to your life. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN.
1: On the program Inside Out, our outsides match our insides. Join host Beth Green along with co host James Maynard for an insightful weekly journey that lets us all be real with no boundaries. We'll discuss current events, interview amazing guests, challenge old ideas, and see ourselves and our world more clearly. It's about you as much as us. So you're invited to call in, write in, and most of all, tune in. Listen for Inside Out, live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel
0: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. The
4: Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Be extraordinary. Be the change.
1: You are tuned in to Conscious Evolution Radio. And we love to hear from you. Please send any questions or comments about the show via email to conscious evolution radio at gmail.com. Again, that's conscious evolution radio at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's program.
2: This is Ann Gelsheimer and welcome back to conscious evolution radio. Again, my guest today is the wonderful Norm- Normandy Ellis and we are talking about uh, the teachings from ancient Egypt. And what I wanted to ask about from your book is the nine bodies that you described, uh, some of which are spiritual bodies that each of us have. I'm wondering if you would tell us more about those bodies, but also how they're involved in the process of evolving our consciousness and increasing our spiritual enlightenment over lifetimes.
3: Okay, great. Um the nine bodies uh, appear on the four planes of existence. So there are. Uh, I have always lined them up with the uh, Kabbalistic Tree of Life. So there are three bodies that are in the upper spiritual realm. Those are the ones that most people are familiar with, um, because those are the ones that they're all always trying to access. The Ba, which is the soul, the Ka, which is what the ancient Egyptians called. Spirit or the animating principle. Uh, and then there's Ak, which is uh, the God Seed, the spark of light that I mentioned before. And those are the three that exist in the upper plane. Um, and all of those, well, except for the Ka, have images of birds associated with them. So that you can, you know, see that as the upper realm. It's representative of the upper realm. And even the Ka, which has the arms, Uh, uplifted almost as if they were flying and trying to touch the sky has that same resonance to it. Um, And then there's a level down, which is the mental plane just below that. And there is um, what's called the name, your sacred name as one of the bodies. Uh, There's an ancient um, chant that says, God is my name, I do not forget this name of mine. Uh, and all of the ways in which your name has a certain vibration and resonance to it. uh, That's called the Rin. And then there's Mm -hmm. something called the Sekhem, which is connected to the goddess Sekhmet. And it's your Mm -hmm. vitality, your willpower that, that is on that plane. And then there's something called the Ab, the heart, the heart, that's weighed in the balance at death, the seat of consciousness, where our, our thoughts and our deeds come to rest eventually. And um, we can talk about, you know, if you want to, we can talk about the weighing of the heart, but that's something that most people understand, um, you know, when your heart right. is heavy or when your heart is light. On the third plane down, um, it's the uh, astral plane or the plane of emotion. And you have um, two bodies, that are shadow bodies in a way. One is a shadow body that's dark, and the other is a shadow body that's light. Now, I don't want to say the dark one's negative, you know, and the white one is, is good. It's not like that. It's more like um, the Sahu, which is the light body, is a body of consciousness. It's an emotional uh, and astral body that exists, a body of consciousness that can mm-hmm. come and go at will. Uh, Kybet is what we call the darker shadow body. It, it actually may, it has been translated as the shadow. And um, it's more like a, in a ghost form or an etheric form. You know, So when someone passes out of this plane and is moving you know, into the next plane, and they're rolling up all of their life experiences, and they come to see people uh, from their past. The Kybet is the one that's visiting people, you know, a couple of days after they've died. If it stays, then it's got problems. But usually everybody's got a Kybet that comes and goes and can be seen.
2: So, and I, I know you mentioned in the book, just um, as a, clar- a point of clarification, that although the term shadow is used, it's not equivalent to Carl Jung's idea of the shadow. That's correct, right?
3: Yes, thank you for saying that. Yes, that is correct. So, how. Um, and there's one more on that lower plane that I want to talk about, and it's sure. called the. Oh, please. Oh, yeah, it's called the uh, cot, and it is. Um, it's a body that's mostly just a container for everything else. It's kind of like what um, would be the equivalent of that uh, gel- the outer casing that contains the gelatinous, whatever was the caterpillar before it went into the cocoon. Okay, that's that thing, you know, and it's also okay. part of our lower astral body. Now, one thing I want to say about the astral plane is that you have contact with it all the time when you're sleeping. You know, um, and so you can be conscious. You can use your Sahu body or you can use your Kaibet body, which is a little less conscious. You know, it's more processing. Where the Sahu is more, um, knows where it's going, it's more intentional. So I would say, you know, when you're sleeping and you're lucid dreaming, you're working with your Sahu as opposed to your Kaibet. That's all I wanted to say about that.
2: And would that be true in shamanic journeying as well, that you're working with the Sahu?
3: Yes, in the best of circumstances. Indeed, you are. Yeah, and that was... Okay. <laughs> in
2: the best of times. Okay. <laughs> That's now, would you, would you talk a bit about their understanding of how we can evolve ourselves uh, consciously, spiritually, uh, moving towards enlightenment?
3: Okay, they believed that, um, I really liked these old scribes, you know, who read their, their books. They were like monks, you know, they read their, their books day in, day out. They did, they copied these sacred texts for their patrons. They thought about what they were writing. They were uh, healers, they were dream interpreters, and they just worked with these glyphs every single day. And if you do that, and if you believe, as they did, that every single thing that exists exists inside the body of God, you would realize that you're walking around inside God's body all the time. That you can't, even when you die, you can't fall out of the body of the divine. You just move into another level of the experience. And I think that that's... Really, what what they came to understand as they were working with these texts. Now, that said, they they also had some practical knowledge about the spiritual value of certain other parts of the divine creation, like the plant substances um, or the rocks and mineral substances. And you know, when you when you um, you have someone who's ill, and you, you create a prescription for them, and you write it with ink from certain crushed-up herbs that have medicinal properties, right? And so you, tell the, you pray over these herbs as you're creating this. Your intention is for healing your intention is for the highest and best of this person. May all that is good and powerful within this plant come into being in this person's life. And then you dip your reed pen in the ink and you write the prescription, you know, a prayer and a petition to whoever your healer is Isis, Sekhmet, Sa, Ptah. You know, you write that prescription and the prayer right on their arm with the juice of this medicine plant that you've just crushed up, and then you ask the person to lick it off. And you've just basically given them, you know, um, the equivalent of, you know, take these two things and go to sleep and call me in the morning. (laughs) Call me in the morning, (laughs) right. (laughs) It's It's kind of the same thing. But it works better... Because the person has... It's not just, oh, yeah, you know, five minutes, yeah, yeah, you look a little peaked, okay, here, take this and leave. That you've participated in your own healing process by being there and witnessing what that person has done. And it takes a period of time, you know, for your consciousness to say, okay, you know, that's how that works. And I, you know... I really think sometimes those old country doctors that we used to have, I mean, I'm old enough to remember, you know, the local country doctor. My brother cut his hand very badly one time on some glass, and the doctor was called over, and he needed stitches. And so the doctor said, do you like cartoons? Look, there's Huckleberry Finn on the ceiling. Watch that Huckleberry Finn. And he hypnotized my brother so he could throw his hand up right there, you know. Wow, right. But it's... It's that intention. That, somebody would say with magic, oh, we hypnotize people on the stage all the time. That's a magic trick. Yes and no.
2: <laughs> well, exa- yeah, I'm trained actually in, in clinical hypnosis, and it's a very powerful tool, and it's a healing tool if it's used properly. Yes. I love what you're describing because it. it it talks about healing on many levels, not just the physical level, but healing the mind, the emotions, and the spirit as well.
3: That's exactly right.
2: So, I, I know we don't have very much time left Um but I wonder if you would tell us a little, if you, if you have a, maybe a, an interesting or a, a particularly rem- a memorable story from your time in Egypt and in, in the pyramids. And then I also definitely want to leave some time to talk about uh, things that you're doing in the future.
3: Oh, well, let's see. My memorable experience and others. I've been, um, I've been in the Temple of Abydos. Uh, in which Jean Houston performed a wedding inside the chapel. That was quite a memorable moment. Um, I carried my mother's ashes to the Temple of Isis at Philae and um, said a prayer for her and felt the energy of Isis in that very room, almost as if she were taking my mother up. You know, my mom always wanted to go to Egypt with me, but she was allergic to sunlight. All oh. thing. I said, you can't right. go. So I took her ashes with me. And um, so it was a really powerful ceremony. And I went and sat on oh, the yes. wall after, after we dispersed the ashes and after the prayers. And I watched the sun come up. And then I went back to gather my things in the Holy of Holies, where we had done the ceremony. And there was the most enormous orb that was over top of the altar, you know. It was like, take this picture. So I took this picture. I was like, I knew it was there. And um, when I developed the photograph, there in that orb was my mother's face. Oh, how beautiful. It was really That's amazing. amazing. Yeah, and I, you know, it well, was like it just floated up. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I've seen lots of really beautiful, you know, send-offs in the Nile.
2: Um, yeah, I know we only we only have a couple of minutes left. Um, people may hear that. I mean, that's a gorgeous uh, encounter with the divine, really, with, with spirit and the divine. People may want to join you on, on future tours. I'm wondering when your next one is.
3: Well, the tour in December is filled at this time. Um, Okay. And I will be going again May 2016. There's information on my website, com, and it's N-O-R-M-A-N-D-I-E-L-L-I-S. So there's information there. Um, I'll be going with Indigo Love, and she and I have both... Done trips with Nikki Scully before, so we're planning to do work with dreams and um, writing and poetry and uh, drawing. Um, so we're, it's going to be an intense art, dream, uh, language experience, immersion. So that will be really a lot of fun, you know, because I really think wow. you go to Egypt and you see all this amazing stuff, and if some way you don't get it down on a piece of paper, it's gone. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so that's our intention for that trip. And um, we're planning it now, and um, it's already online. So if you're interested, uh, just drop me an email or, um, you know, you can do that through my website or you can do that at shamanicjourneys.com.
2: Now, we'll make sure those websites are available on the guest uh, page so people can uh, check that out. Uh, We only have a minute left, but I just want to thank you so much, Normandy, for being on the the program, for sharing this information. It means a great deal to me and I know to many people who are going to tune in. And I do hope you'd consider coming on again because we really have just barely scratched the surface of what you know.
3: I would love to, Anne. I really would. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Thank you. And this is Ann Gelsheimer on Conscious Evolution Radio, and thank you so much for listening in.
1: Thank you again for tuning in to Conscious Evolution Radio. Please join Ann Gelsheimer for another great show next Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. We hope to see you next week.